In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. With your permission, Lord Jesus Christ, truly present with us in the Blessed Sacrament, and our topic of conversation with our Lord is on repentance, and specifically it's on that very special encounter, literally, because every sacrament is an encounter, literally, with Christ, Every sacrament is about true presence. The Blessed Sacrament is the full presence of the resurrected Christ. But in the other sacraments, that resurrected Christ does encounter us with a specific aim. And in the sacrament of confession or reconciliation, uh, that parable of the prodigal son comes to life. And we are that prodigal son. And our Lord is that Father who gives us a sacramental embrace. Part of this quest to be centered on Jesus requires a first step. And we see that first step as one of the common threads running through the different vignettes of Jesus' public life. His infancy All the characters are into uh, plan A, as it were. Jesus is the protagonist, and he happens to be God, so that's That's an impossible act to follow. Uh, His mother is also impossible to follow because she's immaculately conceived, so she has an advantage over us. Uh, I'm sure St. Joseph had uh, more graces than any other person besides the Blessed Mother. So he's another act that is virtually impossible to follow. And Simeon and Anna the prophetess and St. Zachary and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, you know, they're all kind of plan A. They seem to get it right the first time. And uh, gears are switched, thank God. Uh, Misery likes company. And uh, all the characters of the gospel are pretty flawed. For me, that's pretty encouraging. Uh, sorry, I'm just being honest. And they don't have just little weaknesses, you know, well, Matthew has a bit of, you know, tendency to tell white lies, or, you know, once in a while he could be caught in, you know, light gossip. No, the guy, he extorts money, he's a thief, he's a deceiver, he's self-indulgent, he invites a bunch of unsavory characters at his conversion party, loose women, uh, rough people, sinful men, and Jesus is there. And Pharisees are totally scandalized. What are you doing with these unsavory characters? And every one of them, the apostles, St. John, at the end, he becomes pretty lovey-dovey. I mean, he's the one who records Jesus' new commandment. He's the only one who does that. He's the one who narrates the foot-washing episode. He's the one who describes uh, the 
charity necessary for a Christian in his epistles, but he's also the one who prays to Jesus to destroy completely a village in Samaria. You know, so he's not so hot either. At least he wasn't. And his brother was the same way. And so Jesus, with a little bit of Jewish sense of humor, balls them out. It's kind of frustrating here. You're raising such a high bar and and the best these two young men can do is, Lord, why don't you, can you please destroy the town? Just slaughter them all. So something's not working here. But Jesus, who is infinitely loving, is patient, to put it mildly. And then finally, when things simmer down, he nicknames them the Sons of Thunder. You know, so they were hotheads. The very holy women disciples who are role models after their repentance, certainly not before, they fall into serious sins of of impurity, and they repent as well. And one of them announces the resurrection, and they all turn out to be saints. All these saints began as very good repenters. So, Lord, you're asking me to be a very good repenter. We will get into the prodigal son, but maybe we could first contemplate a few segments of One of the most famous psalms, written by King David. He's allegedly the holiest Jewish king, Old Testament king. So again, a little bit of encouragement for us. The rest really left a lot to be desired, and David was the holiest king, the greatest king. Christ figure as well. And it's a beautiful psalm. It's it's profound, it's humble, it's moving but was prompted by a double sin. He violated literally commandment five and commandment six. Commandment nine, too, if you want to be a purist. We know the story. He didn't watch his eyes, and uh, he was watching this uh, beautiful woman bathe, and being the king and very powerful man, he kind of, invited the woman to have relations with him. Much to his chagrin, she conceived. And while her husband was fighting a war, recalls the husband, tries to lead the husband to get back with his wife. So that conception could be attributed to her husband. The husband, who's kind of a noble person, does not want to enter into his house, doesn't want the comforts of his house, the comforts of being with his wife, because his fellow soldiers are right now fighting a war. And David tries to get the guy drunk. He does get him drunk, so that maybe he'll go stay with his wife, be intimate with his wife, but that didn't work either. He slept outside in front of the entrance to his home. And so David said, well, I will organize things in such a way that he'll be in the front lines and I'll ask the general to withdraw the the troops surrounding him so he perishes in this battle. And, you know, he got away with it on a human level, but God obviously saw him, sent his prophet Nathan, and Nathan gave him the bad news that, you know, he's going to be punished for this sin and he lost his first child. And so David, moved by the Holy Spirit, so that's the best king, all right? So it gives you an idea what the rest were like. 
And he says the following, this is one of the highlights, many highlights here. For you have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why is this the Lord's favored form of penance? I mean, the Lord wants our heart. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to transform us. Other sections of the Old Testament, he says, listen, I don't need your goats and your calves and your lambs and your cereal offerings. They're all mine anyway. But I do want your heart. I do want a relationship with you. And what is sin? I mean, Jesus reveals the devil, and you know, a subset of the revelation of the devil is a, also a definition of sin. He, what, he defines the devil as the father of lies. He defines the devil as a murder from the very beginning in John 8. And then in the book of Revelation, he defines the devil as the great accuser. So these are three aspects of sin, that they're lying, sin is destructive, it's also addictive. Jesus uses the word, we become a slave of it, whether it's anger, lust, laziness, envy, all the seven capital sins. So that's what the Lord wants of me, that humble and contrite heart. How do I do that? Well, and we have to um, put in the right context, because if you don't put in the right context, it's not technically true. Sometimes St. Jose Maria would, they would ask, what's the most important virtue? Obviously, everybody knows it's charity and the other two theological virtues. But at times he would say, listen, you know, in a relative sense, in, in the right context, he says it's sincerity or self-honesty. Well, why does he say that? Sincerity. Because self-knowledge is the raw material for repentance. I mean, I could beat my chest all I want and say I'm a sinner, and especially when I go to confession and make my exam, and then I say it in confession, now I know. Now I'm much more repentant because I have to know what I did. One thing is, hey, did you know you happened to me? It was raining very hard torrentially, you know, and I'm not the tallest person in the world. And there was this couple, you know, both tall, okay? And it was raining, you know, and the rain was kind of horizontal. You know, I was walking to the CTA and um, I walked by this couple and kept walking fast. And then the, the man, you know, walked next to me. He said, you know, uh, you almost poked my wife in the eye. And I said, when? You just walked by us. I go, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. I, I, I apologize. Is she okay? And, then, you know, he kind of backed off. He says, listen, you know, I'm, I'm just giving you the heads up. You know, just be, just be careful. I said, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't know that. He said, well, okay, don't, don't worry about it. But, uh, you know, especially with this weather, you know, you don't want to, poke someone in the eye. I I got it. Thank you very much. Uh, um, I will be more careful. But if he didn't enlighten me that, you know, his wife almost lost her eye, um, I would have, 
I would have not thought anything of it. I would have thought, you know, I'm, I'm totally innocent, you know. Uh, but I realized, well, you know, probably my level, the umbrella over my head was at their eye level, you know. And so I need that self-knowledge. And so David says here in Psalm 51, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward being. What is this truth? It's the truth about me, me, to know myself. I can't repent unless I could identify, and it's not about self-absorption, it's not about wallowing in my guilt trip, it's about getting off a guilt trip. But it is releasing those barriers between myself and Jesus Christ. And so knowing the truth about myself, and knowing another truth, because we want to follow that sequence of events that lead to repentance of the gospel, at least Obviously, examination of conscience is key. You can't, you can't repent without an examination of conscience. But how do I do an examination of conscience? No, I, I know. Ask, you know, did I have, did, was I kind to people? Did I bear my cross? Did I live custody of the eyes? Did I guard my heart? We, we know the questions. We, we're all on the same page here. But how do I see myself? And John of the Cross says, some of us are tied to a chain, and the chain kind of is a symbol or a metaphor of serious sin, the chain. He said, well, to be released from that chain, you need to cut the chain, remove the chain. He said, but also, you may be tied down by a thread. He used a bird. A bird could be tied by a chain and can't fly, and, or the bird is tied by a thread. And the thread represents mediocrity, lukewarmness. And it's kind of harder to see than the chain, that the chain's obvious. And so what the Holy Spirit says through David, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart, and wisdom is a figure of Christ himself. The sequence, and I'll tell a couple anecdotes to illustrate this, the sequence of events in the gospel is that repentance begins with a conversation, an experience of Christ. I mean, take your pick. How about, you know, the last friend of Jesus before he died? You know, one gospel says they're both taunting him. I have a feeling they both were taunting him because one gospel said that. And I think St. Luke's gospel says that the one on his right humbly said, listen, you know, he recognized the innocence of Jesus. He recognized his own sinfulness and also the other guy on the left. We deserve this, he said. Lord, when you enter into the kingdom, remember me. And our Lord says, amen, amen. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's why our Lord wants that humble heart. Maybe the way to look at this, what, okay, what does it mean to contemplate Christ? Well, to talk to him. Peter repented when Jesus looked at him. Then he started to weep. Demas converted when he talked to Christ. Zacchaeus converted when Jesus looked at him when he was up on the tree looking at Christ. And Christ said, I'm gonna, I'll go, I want to come to your house. Matthew converted because he had a relationship with Christ. The Samaritan woman did not hear, you know, an impassioned speech on theology of the body. She talked to Christ. Christ said, give me a drink. So she started to get into a relationship with Christ. Christ said to her, 
I want you to be happy, honey. If you only knew the gift of God and who is it that asks you for a drink, you would have asked of him living water. Well, give me that water, she says. And Jesus said, well, call your husband. Uh-oh. Now that's getting personal. <laughs> All right? And what happens? Well, our, our Lord, in a very merciful, gentle way, tries to get her to know herself. He said, well, you know, don't ask me any more questions, but I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know, you're living with a man right now. And previous to that, you had five husbands. But who's counting? I had a conversation with Argentinian, to be exact, a number of years ago now. It was uh, many years ago. And he was um, kind of being sarcastic to me. This, has, this is not really germane. He said, you know, you, you Americans, you know, you're pretty, you know, a lot of you are sinless. I go, we are? He says, yeah, in comparison to us. He said, you know, when this was probably many years ago, who knows what, what goes on now. He said, when I go to Mass, every American, everybody goes to communion. Not one person feels that he's, <laughs> he's not in condition. In my country, he says, you know, maybe a quarter don't go to communion, especially the men. So I guess, you know, you have, a, you have that gift of not being sinful as we are. So anyway, but he, nice fellow, young man. Um, and he was kind of lamenting that um, his family, he was the only practicing Catholic in his family. His parents weren't practicing, his siblings weren't practicing. And the Holy Father was going to visit Argentina. And uh, he said, uh, I asked, well, that, now's your, now you can encourage your family to go out and see the, the Holy Father. And he said, they're not going to bother they're not interested. Like, okay. Uh, I said, that's too bad because I think it could you know, have a nice effect. He says, oh, I know that, but they're, they're not interested. It means nothing. It's a... Anyway, they, they watched him, but there was so much buzz in Argentina and Buenos Aires when the Pope came that uh, they felt compelled to at least watch it on TV, some of it. And they watched, they became mesmerized, and he told me they eventually all went to confession and started to pray as a family. They never did that, ever. And uh, similar story, similar, not the same. You know, the, all the popes, down to Francis, they like to greet the people who either celebrated their wedding that year or the 25th anniversary or 50th anniversary. This was 25th anniversary. Kind of, these stories happened often. And a uh, wedding couple, this wedding couple was in the front. Just the, the bride and the wife, not the bride, the wife wanted to go to Rome as her 25th anniversary celebration present and see the Pope. And so the husband accommodated her. Um, she allegedly was a practicing Catholic, serious Catholic, husband not. And the Pope was making his rounds and giving rosaries and congratulating them for their 25th. He, approaches that couple, wishes them a happy anniversary, moves on. Wife says, Your Holiness, my husband never doesn't practice his faith. Right to the Pope. Can imagine your wife tattling on you to the Pope. <laughs> That's kind of rough, you know. Um, so just trying to be transparent, I guess. And so the Pope comes back, and he's not smiling either. I heard the story secondhand. And uh, Pope makes a beeline to the guy and grabs him by his shoulders and kind of shakes him a little bit, uh, looks in his eyes. 
you know, kind of in a pause. I think he was, he was a Spanish native speaker. And the Pope said in Spanish, my son, how, how sad it must be to be so far from Jesus Christ. And uh, he said, I hope you reconsider. And then he left. He went to confession. He, and he repented. What was going on here in these different cases that when we look at Christ and the goodness of Christ and what Christ has to offer, that's step number one. Another way of doing that, we look at the prodigal son. There's a lot of symbolic message as well. And he just divided his living between them. He says, Father, give me a share of my property that falls to me. So in other words, what's that property? Yeah, I know what it means. But ultimately, it's my freedom. I'm going to serve myself. Basically, that's what it is. You know, the journey's right here inside of me. I've decided, but that's what it is. I've decided that we're going to part ways. Maybe not directly, but by violating your commandments. Those who are old enough to remember that song by Frank Sinatra, or what he sang, I did it my way. That's basically what it is. I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. I do it my way. Hey, I want to be happy, but I'm going to be happy my way. I don't buy into the happiness that divine revelation promises. I don't buy into the happiness that Christ promises. I don't buy it. I'm going to do it my way. And, you know, the collective global sin is, natural law is inimical. It's harmful. It's a violation of human rights. A lot of areas of natural law are that way in our culture of moral relativism. I do it my way. That's what cultural moral relativism is all about. And we've never been sadder. We've never been more depressed. We've never been more despairing because of that collective sin of I do it my way. And so that's what it is. Give me my share of property. And he divided his living between them, and not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And what happened? Well, he got on a super guilt trip. He was famished. He was hungry. He was feeding pigs. He lost his sense of dignity and self-worth. That's what a sin does. And he was vulnerable to the great accuser. I made a mistake. The, my father's not going to take me back. I mean, why should he? I, I squandered all my property on loose living. I've hurt him. I've alienated myself from him. But what does he do? Step number one, I'm famished here. I'm unhappy here. I've lost my dignity. And he reflects on the goodness of his father. And that's what prompts him to come back. And that's what I have to do, too. I can't give in to the great accuser. Well, I, Lord, you must be sick of me. I do the same stupid things all the time. I'm not sick of you. I love you infinitely. Eh? The exaltation of the Holy Cross, you know, that's how much you're worth to me. Come back. That's why my favored penance is a humble, contrite heart. Not to shame you, but to get you back. Maybe we could end our prayer using the way here where St. Josemaria gives us encouragement and repentance. He says the following, Another fall, what a fall, despair, no. Humble yourself, and through Mary, your mother, have recourse to the merciful love of Jesus.
Have mercy on me and lift up your heart and now begin again. Okay, Lord, that's the sentiment we want. You help us struggle with your intervention, Mary, mm-hmm. against that great accuser and help me be a man of repentance and help me have a spirit of examination, a conscience not to wallow in my defects and sins, but as a springboard to begin again. Thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.